His name was Jed, and I met him when he was a freshman at the University of Memphis. And everything about Jed seemed fresh and new. He was uh, an amazing athlete. He always had this big smile, and that was long before you whitened your teeth, but his teeth looked beautiful. His words were always positive, uh, and he was very excited about his new girlfriend, Mary. But Jed had a secret hidden away inside of him. And even though he was young and even though he was energetic, uh, he felt old inside. And he felt lost and he felt alone. He told me about this later. He told me that sometimes he would even, when he was absolutely alone, that he would even cry out to God whenever he let himself think about it. He came to the dorm Bible study that I led on Thursday nights at 10 o'clock. And he lived in the dorm, and we had met and invited him. And he came every week. And at first, he seemed very excited, very interested in this journey of holiness that we talked about. Uh, but over the course of time, Jed began to learn a very dangerous skill. It was the art of resisting God. And it seemed like the clearer that God came into focus, the more that Jed resisted. He was young, he was smart, he was strong, but as we just sang, he desperately needed what he was resisting. And frankly, it has become, had become very hard for him to admit his need. I remember a series of critical days for Jed. He kind of stayed away, and he stayed alone. And when I did see him and when I talked to him, it was so obvious to me that he was struggling. And one Thursday night, uh, Jed did, just didn't show up to our study. And I, I, I wasn't sure, but I thought Jed had quit. And I didn't know that he'd been struggling for days. And so we were inside for our one hour, and we did our study, all the guys in the hall and me. I didn't know that outside, Jed was waiting in the hallway, sitting on the floor back against the wall. He'd reached a climax, a turning point. And when the study ended and I walked outside, he was sitting there and he said, I'm ready to follow him. And so we called as many people as we could. That was kind of our tradition. Whatever time of day it was, we called as many students as we could to come together to be with him. And Jed was baptized that night. Later, Jed taught and baptized Mary. And they've been married for 25 years now. And they attend one of the sister churches in Memphis, Tennessee. What was Jed struggling with that night in the dorm? He was at a point of decision. He was wondering, what do I do next? What's the next step for me? He wanted to be close to God. That never was in question. But he knew he had to make a choice. He knew that he had to choose a journey. And tonight I want us to put ourselves in Jed's place, that place of struggle, and let it be our struggle. And as we give serious thought to experiencing God's holiness, uh, this first marker we come to is the one that Jed faced, and that's choice. I have to choose my journey. 
And we have some options here. Uh, one direction, I, I just call it the way of the cross. And of all the places we could go, one of the clearest presentations of this direction was given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. We call them the Beatitudes. And you're familiar with them, but I want you to look at them one more time. Here are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the way of the cross. But there is another option there. I found this little piece written by J.B. Phillips. He's the one that wrote, translated the Phillips translation. And I call it the way of the crowd. And I want you to see it next. It's another choice. Blessed are those who have all the answers, for they will be confident and in control. Blessed are those who ignore their losses, for they will never feel pain. Blessed are those who are proud, for they will get what they deserve. Blessed are those who don't care what God wants, for they'll get what they want out of life. Blessed are those who get even, for they will save face. Blessed are the schemers, for they will see their dreams come true. Blessed are the fighters, for they will be respected. Blessed are those who do anything to fit in, for they will be well-liked. And as I read this, I just realized you saw something different. There are two versions of this. But what I want you to do is to see uh, this big picture. We have some choices. Uh, I want us to see which direction to go and the one that Jed chose. And to examine this journey of holiness and to see how it brings us closer to God, it helps me to get a larger picture. It helps me to see these Beatitudes from several vantage points. We can look first, as we did, to see that there are eight steps, eight Beatitudes. And here, what I mean by this is I think that there is a definite order uh, to these principles. Uh, they're not haphazardly or accidentally placed. Why don't we go back and look at the other one, Austin? The way of the cross. There's a definite order to these principles. Uh, there's a spiritual sequence to them. One builds, on the found, the, builds the foundation for the next one. In fact, you might just notice the very first one. How many uh, recovery uh, ministries start with that one? Addiction recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, they all start with basically admission, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so they're not accident, they're not haphazard, there's a sequence. But then you can back up a little bit and say, rather than just eight steps, you could say there are four stages here. And by grouping them, you can see four clear stages. There are admission and openness and growth and ministry. And then if you back up even further, you can see two large sections. The first half of the Beatitudes describe people who are coming to terms 
with their need for God, the beginning of their journey of holiness. And then the last four describe people who are now living and following this holy God. So eight steps, four stages, two sections. There's lots of ways to divide them up. But tonight I want us to pick the middle road and look at the four stages and to travel this journey of holiness. Let's follow the stages knowing that they will take us deeper into the heart of God. So first, let's begin with admission. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Think of this for a minute. The word poor, it's used here and 34 other times in the New Testament, and it always is used in comparison to rich. Like Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Or Mark chapter 12, the poor widow. Or James chapter 2, the poor man at the banquet. The poor were impoverished. They were poverty stricken. They were absolutely desolate. And if, I, if it seems like I'm in emphasizing that in a heavy way, it's for a purpose. The poor had to be given to. They would not survive without help. And then think of the second word here, spirit. He's not talking about the Spirit of God. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not describing an evil spirit. He means the human spirit, the real you, what's down deep inside. Not tissue and muscle and height and width and weight. It's not status or power or looks because all that's going to go to dust and what will be left is the real you, spirit. And Jesus is saying that we have to begin this journey with the realization that we cannot transform our own life. We cannot forgive our own guilt. We cannot create our purpose. We cannot explain our death. We're poor. We're destitute. We're absolutely dependent. And that flies in the face of our culture. It flies especially in the face of Southern culture. And especially in the face of Texas culture. Because we do it ourselves here. And we're proud of it. And Jesus says, you have to stop thinking that way because you don't. You use resources God gave you with talent God gave you with time God gave you for opportunities God gave you. It all comes from Him. Poor, desolate, dependent. Do we believe that? Or do we look at our income? Do we look at our health? Do we look at our homes? Do we look at our investments? And we say, I feel pretty good. Look at what I've done. As long as we try to scotch tape meaning and purpose and happiness onto our lives, we'll never have it because it begins with a spirit of admission. Now, when the spirit of admission begins to well up inside, 
and really stick in my throat. Jesus says that we will mourn. He's describing it in a way that maybe our world would call odd. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, with some translation, it really comes out strange, especially those who insert the word happy for blessed, which is a mistake. Happy are they that mourn? It doesn't even sound right. Happy are the ones who cry. Happy are the ones who grieve. Happy are the unhappy. But remember the spiritual sequence. Put this principle back in its context. Put it back in the sequence. We won't understand the blessing of mourning in verse 4 until we see how it comes from the poor in spirit in verse 3. It's part of the spiritual sequence. It's part of the spirit of admission. The kingdom belongs to those who realize their absolute destitution, their spiritual destitution. We know we can't make it on our own. And so what naturally follows is this level of personal honesty, mourning. And where there is no mourning... There is no blessing. And where there is no sorrow over what I am without God, there is no calm when God comes into my life. Where there's no facing the bad news, there's no understanding of the good news. And it's hard for us. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I basically have one. I collect information about my family name. I like maps and books about Chisholm, especially the cattle trail Chisholm. So when I go into a bookstore, I go to the theology section for sure. I'll probably find Wayne there. And then I'll go to the Texana and the cattle part. And I'll look for things there. And that has led me to another little tiny sliver of a hobby. And that's cowboy poetry. There are real cowboys who write poetry. I'm not saying it's very good, but they do write it. Some of them are old, and some of them are contemporary. Uh, And I want to read you a poem that captures the spirit of our culture, written by Waddy Mitchell. Out on the cliff's edge, further than he's ever been before, he sat with legs a-dangling high above the valley's floor. He was lost in thought while drinking in the grandeur of it all when a gust of wind unseated him. And he began to fall. T'was a drastic situation, and he didn't dare think slow, for certain death awaited in the rocky crags below. So he called upon a friend, I guess the only one he could, the one we all forget about when things are going good. He said, God, if you'll help me now, I'll quit my sinful ways. I'll do the things you'd have me do and work hard all my days. I'll quit the booze and cigarettes and help my loving wife. I'll spend time with my children. I'll turn around my life. I'll work to help the needy, and I promise to repent. Just then, a tree limb caught his coat and stopped his fast descent. And while hanging from the tree that grew upon that rocky shelf, he looked skyward, saying, Never mind, I've handled it myself. Now, you know what uh, Waddy Mitchell named that poem? Typical. Typical. I'll do it myself. 
until I need you. Stage one, admission. Admitting I need him. If I understand stage one, and I let God work with me in stage one, then I can move to the stage two in this journey of holiness that I call openness. I'm open to God now. Look at verses five and six. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The blessed person is one who has faced the failure in their life, and they're deeply sorry, and now Jesus says they're meek. And there's our problem. Meek. What does meek sound like? What does it rhyme with? Weak. And that couldn't be further from its meaning. Meek means ready to learn. They're receptive. They're teachable. They have a spirit of openness. In fact, now they are so open that Jesus says that they hunger and thirst for God. Not long ago, I passed by a place where no one has eaten anything in years. It's called a cemetery. The dead are not hungry. They don't eat at all. But contrast that with a newborn baby. Oh, man, their hunger is audible. They tell you all the time what they want. And everything they find, it may not be food, but it might be, so it goes in their mouth. Their hunger is there. They cry out for food. They cry out for attention. They cry out for comfort. In fact, all living things, if they're alive, hunger and thirst. This may sound like a bit of trivia, but I once read that a beech tree can take up to 65 gallons of water a day. That's a thirsty tree. And of course, I read the defini- this definition of a small boy. A small boy is an appetite with skin stretched over it. They're hungering because they're growing. Hunger is a sign of life, which brings us back to this spirit of openness. And it says, teach me and fill me, feed me, because I hunger for you, O God. Now, I want to dig just a little deeper here because we really can't, because we can misunderstand what it means to be hungry. Remember the the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? It says that he was hungry. Now, when he was hungry, what did he think about? He thought about the food the pigs were eating. But when he was starving, what did he think about? He thought about his father back home. And you can hear him working through the stages, admission, facing and mourning his failure, to openness. I'm going to go back to my father. I want change in my life. And his openness came when he said, verse 17 of that story says, he came to his senses. I thought, what does it usually take for us to come to our senses, to hunger for God? You see, a lot of people become religiously involved just enough to satisfy guilt, but not hunger, not hunger. You see, guilt is addressed in the first beatitude, the poor in spirit, and in the second beatitude, mourning. 
But the third and fourth Beatitudes take us to the next step. If I have really faced my failure, blessed are the poor in spirit. If I'm truly sorry, blessed are those who mourn. And I'm becoming open to change, blessed are the meek. Then my hunger is for righteousness. A higher hunger. An insatiable appetite for what is right. An appetite that only God can meet. An appetite for God alone. Let's think about it together in song. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. Jesus, who taught us to pray for our daily bread, also said this, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We have a God hunger, which takes us to the third stage. Traveling in this journey of holiness, we expand in our heart, and we're ready now for growth. And that's what Jesus says in verses 7 and 8. Look at those with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And here we're turning the corner. The first four Beatitudes describe a life that is humbled before God, that's learning from God. The last four Beatitudes describe that same life now that's been healed and changed, and now it's being used by God. And I think you can see how the first four Beatitudes bring a person to the point that the last four make sense. And so what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Do you want to be like God? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, I don't know, but there may be people here tonight who don't relate easily to the practice of of mercy but I bet you everybody in here can relate easily to the need for mercy I need it everybody here needs it and it's only when we become aware of our need for mercy that we become merciful 
It's like the other principles. Mercy can be misunderstood. Mercy is not getting a warning instead of a ticket. Mercy is not getting an extra day on a school project or an extension on a late bill. That's not mercy. Mercy is not giving someone more time to handle their own problems on their own. That's not mercy. Now, mercy is becoming a part of the problem for someone. It's stepping into it. It's climbing into the hole to help them get out. It's not giving them more time to get out of their hole. Mercy is becoming a part of their misery. Mercy is feeling the hurt, bearing the pain. It's getting involved. Jesus came to the earth not to stand up from afar and say, you should be like me. No, he came and he contracted the sin disease of humanity so he could heal it. That's mercy. I have a friend, his name is Paul, and Paul befriended an elderly woman that he just met in the city. And she lives in a rundown house. I mean, it's, it could hardly be called a house. But that's her home. And she was old enough to be his grandmother. And he would visit her, and he would listen to her stories. He'd run errands for her. Well, one day, her house burned to the ground. It was a complete loss, total loss. There was nothing there but just a soggy mess. But she wanted to look through it. Anyway, and so Paul went to help her. And he took a Christian young man with him that I knew. And they helped this lady pick through uh, the soggy rubble that was there. And after several hours of fruitless searching, the young man that came with Paul finally voiced his frustration. He said, we've been looking for hours and we haven't found anything. To which Paul said, no, you, you've missed the point. I knew we wouldn't find anything. We're not here to find anything. She doesn't need us to find anything. She needs us to look with her. To be with her. That's what she needs. That's mercy. To be a part of her pain. And to be with her when she realizes her search is fruitless. And to be there to comfort. This is the spirit of growth. But it will only happen when you've gone through the process. And apparently the young man with Paul had not gone through the process. He was too practical. This is not working. Let's leave. But this is not the only work that God's doing inside my heart. Look at verse 8 again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it's immediately obvious that the words in heart show the kind of purity that Jesus is talking about. It's inside. It's deep. It's not cosmetic. It's not external. It's internal. One of my favorite writers, Albert Day, wrote, Let us remind ourselves that the purity we seek can never be our own achievement. There's a strange paradox here. Only the pure in heart shall see God, but only those who see God will be pure in heart. And the purity will come 
and integrity can happen because of the process that God is taking me through, the stages, the gradually opening of the deepest part of my life to God, to the one who can change me. Once again, if I could read Albert Day, instead of throwing up our hands in despair or throwing away our hunger for God, seek it. Seek it for 10 years. Seek it for 20 years. Seek it for 30. And then come back and tell me what you think. And then listen to this. Men have been searching for values of vastly lesser significance for longer periods of time. We have our hobbies, and we'll keep them for 40 years. But we don't have time for God for a year. It's not working. Seek Him for 10 years, and then tell me what's changed in your life. Keep it up. Admission, openness, growth. And then finally, traveling this journey of holiness, we come to service, to ministry. Matthew 5, verses 9 and 10. And this is where Jesus finally takes us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, as we go through the process, as we move from a spirit of admission to a spirit of openness to a spirit of growth, God is doing something. And he's bringing peace in our own souls. He's bringing peace to the war that's inside. And at the same time, he's equipping us to bring that peace to other people. And in finding peace, we become peacemakers. And becoming peacemakers and entering into God's mission, well, it's often like stepping into the crosshairs into the war zone. But that's what you do when you have a spirit of ministry. You travel the journey of holiness, getting closer to God, and you step into, so much into the ministry of peacemaking that now it's bringing you persecution. But you can take that. You can take the snide remarks. You can take the words. You can take being left out because you're serving a higher purpose and that process has brought you to helping people you can spend your money you can use your home you can give things away you can talk to people that approach you because God has brought you to that point now he's brought peace in your heart and you want to provide that to people who don't have it I want to play a little Prentice Matter on you now. I want to give you four take-homes. And you can write these down if you'd like to. Lessons that we can take. Number one, the journey of holiness is not something we do. It's something that we are. God works on the inside, what we are. And then eventually, holiness becomes something we do because of something that we are. Secondly, those who follow the journey of holiness are meek, but they're not weak. We have typecast the meek person as someone who has no opinion of their own, no direction, no conviction, 
They're off in the corner, afraid to become involved, but nothing could be further from the truth. Now, meekness is teachable. It doesn't mean weak, lifeless, timid, afraid. It means ready. It means pliable. It means open. It means available. And the best word for it would be teachable. This is a person who's given the hammer and the chisel to God and said, make me into whatever you want me to be. I'm meek. And then thirdly, the journey of holiness creates a hunger that will never be satisfied. It's real important to see that Jesus did not say, blessed are those who achieve righteousness. What did he say? Blessed are those who hunger for it. And I never push away from the table of God saying, oh man, I'm full. I've had enough of you. No. We stay at the table. We enjoy this table. We're always hungry for God. And guess what? We're never empty. When it comes time for me to give of myself to other people, God is still pouring into me. It doesn't ever stop. And my ministry to people is the overflow of my life. It's not what I go dump on them. And so my cup, my life, myself, is never empty. Because I'm always there, hungering for Him. And then finally, fourthly, the journey of holiness takes us into the war zone. Satan is the one who spreads the seeds of war. And to enter the war zone to bring peace is exactly what a son or a daughter of God would do. Healed, at peace with myself and with God, we walk back in to the war zone. And we involve ourselves in another person's problem, another person's pain. I read about a woman who was married to a very, very harsh man. His expectations were rigid. In fact, he even gave her daily lists of things to do, things that she should accomplish every day. And he checked them at the end of the day. And if she didn't have everything done, he would explode in anger. And even if she did get it all done, he was never satisfied with it. And that was her life, living with a rigid, violent, angry man. Well, his health declined. One day, he passed away. And after some time, this woman remarried, but this time to a very gentle man, a loving, tender man who never gave her any lists at all. Instead, he seemed to be thankful and complimentary of everything she'd contributed to their marriage and to their family. One day, she was down in the basement looking through an old box, and she ran across some papers, and she recognized them. They were some of the lists that her first husband had given her. And she thought, maybe I shouldn't read these at all. But she pulled one out and started reading it, and she began to cry because she was doing everything on that list. And no one had told her to do it. And she realized she was doing them joyfully and easily out of love without even a thought. 
I used to think that the Beatitudes ended with the spirit of ministry, but now I say that they lead to the spirit of ministry and there is no end. Like the wife in the story, it's a ministry of love. It's empowered by gratitude. I want to close with a thought that has made the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount much more personal for me. I'm going to ask you to answer this question. To whom was this sermon given to? Most of my life, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it was the big sermon. It was the sermon that everybody crowded around. They all gathered. Maybe they put up billboards, I don't know, handed out papers. He's going to be speaking on Monday morning. Y'all come. But let me read you the first two verses of Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are ministry principles. Read through the Sermon on the Mount with that in mind. Here, you're going to encounter this, and you're going to encounter this. You're going to need to have this in mind and that in mind. Here are the crowds. Sit down. Let's talk about ministry. And so I ask you, which stage would you say that you're in? A stage of admission. I'm admitting my needs, my need for God. A stage of openness. I want to change. Teach me. A stage of growth. I'm becoming pliable in his hands. He's using me. A stage of ministry. I'm so involved in his peacemaking in my community and in my neighborhood that sometimes it hurts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus that have lived for centuries, have empowered people and given direction for eons. And we pray, Father, that we will be honest as he asked the twelve to be honest with where we are. Father, we pray that you will humble our pride if that's where we are. We pray you'll calm our fears if that's where we are. We pray that you'll fill our hearts if we're hungry. We pray, Father, you'll put us in ministry's path, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, if that's where we are. But wherever we are, Father, we pray you'll be moving us down the stages of growth. We love you and we thank you for your patience in our life. We praise you and we thank you for the time to be together tonight. And Father, just hear our prayer because of this amazing teacher named Jesus. Through him, amen. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, uh, let us know that prayer need, that need that you have. Father, together we stand and sing.